For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Early voting is already underway in Oklahoma for the general election, so let's talk about the races to watch, starting with the governor. Earlier this week, incumbent Kevin Stitt received an endorsement from Texas Senator Ted Cruz, while Democrat Joy Hoffmeister got one from former Republican Congressman J.C. Watts. Neva, what do you think about this race? I think it looks like it's going to the wire, just like we've talked about now for weeks. I mean, the, the polls are fluctuating, as we expect, and, and certainly we see many of them uh, within the margin of error. I think it's interesting uh, when you look at uh, 538's aggregation of all of the polls in the past month. I mean, it still shows uh, uh, Stitt with a three-point advantage, but then we've seen polls come out as late or, or just recently, a couple of days ago, um, an Amber integrated poll that showed it uh, a dead heat at 45-44. So, uh, you know, the fascinating poll and, and, and the one I think that's going to be either um, the one that uh, proves to be um, the surprise is the, is the governor's pollster. And, and this is the WPA poll because, again, we saw circulated this week uh, a memo to interested parties that, that basically still showed the governor with a 13-point lead. And uh, in this poll, they were asserting that uh, he was leading with independents, with women, with obviously with Republicans. You break it down into the, the various groups of boomers or Gen X or Gen Z, all of those. And it showed that he was winning rural voters Interestingly, it also showed uh, uh, by not saying that he was uh, not leading in either the first or fifth congressional districts. So obviously we know, as we've talked about, the metropolitan areas are key to this in terms of turnout. But to have a poll that is that widely different from all of these other uh, tracking polls out there, uh, they're either on the pulse and they feel comfortable and they they know that uh, everyone else or the pundits that are going to be surprised and in probably in their view with egg on their face but we have a lot of national um, uh, pundits pollsters um, commentators that certainly have now started to focus on this and it is it is a race that's on the radar now nationally will be talked about Tuesday evening and will be uh, we'll see a great deal of interest in what the outcome is. Ryan. Well, it, it's going to come down to turnout in metropolitan areas for Joy Hoffmeister. If, if she has big turnout in Oklahoma County, uh, she has big turnout in Cleveland County, if she has big turnout in Tulsa County, and her margins there are kind of what these polls seem to suggest, um, I think that then you combine that with the rural areas where Governor Stitt, by, the, by his own account and by the, these other polls' accounts, is still winning in rural Oklahoma, but not winning as much as he did four years ago. Uh, and that's really kind of key to the Republican statewide electoral strategy is, you know, they, they kind of uh, get to the point where they seed Oklahoma County. Uh, you know, they seed, for the most part, Tulsa County in most of these races, with some exceptions. Cleveland County, you know, Democrats, uh, you know, Comanche is kind of a a flip seat uh, or flip county, but they have to win big in these other rural counties, and that's how they overcome these metropolitan votes. And the difference that Joy Hoffmeister has run a campaign talking to rural Oklahomans, in particular about an issue that rural Oklahomans care a whole lot about, and that's education and those rural schools. And you know, she has just really driven that message home. Uh, you know, about a week ago, uh, I I kind of had, had this anecdotal sense that maybe both campaigns had peaked too early uh, that, you know, we're like, we're sitting here and it's like, oh man, we still have like 10 days to go. <laughs> and, and, you know, what else is there to do? 
and then you have the, the Ted Cruz rally, which, you know, by most accounts was pretty poorly attended, you know, 400 folks. What's up with Ted Cruz? Can't bring more than 400 people into a room. The weather is nice. I mean, it wasn't even an ice storm. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing is this J.C. Watts ad. Um, I think that, you know, you're, we're really kind of seeing this turning point. You know, Joy Hoffmeister leaves the Republican Party, comes to the Democratic Party, uh, even though she says, you know, she's been, she was a registered Republican longer than Kevin Stitt was registered to vote. But, you know, it came from the Republican Party. J.C. Watts, I mean, just a pillar of the Republican Party. Maybe there's this sense uh, among some Republicans in the state of Oklahoma, whether that's, you know, voters or former elected officials or leaders in the Republican Party, that, you know, part of their party is just too far gone. You know, they, they've gone so far to the right that there's no real reasoning with them anymore. And maybe this is a trend that we're going to see is, you know, more moderate Republicans seeing the Democratic Party as a home. And, you know, it'll be interesting whether or not Democrats continue to welcome uh, expat Republicans, but it really could shape politics in Oklahoma for, for a long time to come where you see a, a real fight for the middle. And that's what Joy Hoffmeister has really uh, focused her campaign on. And if she wins, I think that that sets the tone for four years. And I think the other thing is what happens with respect to what the final numbers are with the Native American vote. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is really, I mean, they, they construe this as a 14-point block of votes, or 14%, pardon me, block of votes that could be could be the uh, a deciding factor if they come to the polls in extraordinarily high numbers, much more so than we've ever seen them in the past. Mm -hmm. We've talked about how much money they have infused into uh, the campaign indirectly, as well as trying to mobilize their, their folks uh, directly. And I think that uh, this is certainly something, even going back to the, the poll that I referenced, that uh, uh, the WPA uh, poll that uh, has the governor's pollster uh, as a partner in that firm, they talked about how the governor was only down 10 points <laughs> among Native Americans um, and that they, they viewed that as closing, closing the gap and maybe uh, not uh, giving that as much uh, concern. Um, but I think this is going to be a fascinating race to the extent that with the outside money, 25 million, whatever number you want to finally put on it uh, as, the, as that final number, that plus the highest spending governor's race just with the two campaigns, mm -hmm. what they mm -hmm. have ellipsed in, in, the, uh, uh, in the 2018 campaign uh, with the governor and, and Drew Edmondson, we're going to see, I think, a, a continued shift because the focus uh, of voters having an opinion in this race and whether or not that can be translated to turnout is going to be something that we're all going to watch with interest Tuesday evening. And, and those, those uh, ads that tribal governments have cut together, you know, the Unite Oklahoma ads, uh, where you have the, the chiefs and leaders from you know, various tribes around the state of Oklahoma, I mean, those, are, those are beautiful and effective ads. Um, you know, so much of it isn't about, you know, go vote for this candidate or another candidate. I think that tribal governments, you know, recognize that that the governor's pollster here just probably isn't on the mark with regard to the governor's support among tribal members in the state of Oklahoma. And they recognize that, you know, it's not about, you know, we don't even have to tell folks at this point uh, among our various tribes, our tribal citizens, how to vote. They know, you know, they've been watching this, you know, they're, they're not idiots. You know, they, they've been, re they've been reading the news. They know that this is a governor who's picked up every fight that he can. And then some with tribal governments from day one in the governor's office, so, you know, their main message in these ads is go vote, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and how important it is and how sacred of a right it is that we have this ability to vote, that it's, uh, it's part of being a citizen of both the, you know, the United States, of Oklahoma and of their tribal, tri of their tribal nations. So 
if they show up to vote um, in in larger numbers than than typical, I, I think that. And again, this isn't a one-time thing. Even if even if they do show up, uh, and even if Governor Stick gets reelected, I think that this is an, a new model for you know tribal involvement in state politics. They're not just going to you know roll up and and go home. Uh, you know they are in this deal, and they recognize that it's important for them to have a, a voice in who gets elected. You know, and I think it's interesting. Pat McFerrin said this week. In fact, I think it was quoted in the Time Magazine article on this race uh, that, uh, and he's certainly a longtime political consultant, Republican uh, pollster, uh, well respected in the uh, in the industry. And he said that basically this was this election was a referendum on Kevin Stitt. He said it. It really wasn't a choice between the two candidates right now. And I think that's what we're seeing is that this composite uh, avalanche of uh, advertising that has created the narrative that now the governor's having to really try to compete against and knock down, that's going to be the interesting thing, even perhaps much more so than just a clash of personalities, because it really hasn't been that. Uh, mm-hmm. It hasn't been that even in the debate we talked about. Uh, it was really about kind of carving out, staking the claim and their territory and trying to uh, uh, be very efficient in trying to make sure that they galvanized and mobilized their voters so that they can, in fact, turn them out on Tuesday. The other major race on the ballot this year is State Superintendent Republican Ryan Walters and Democrat Gina Nelson. Ryan, what are your expectations on this election? Again, toss-up race. Um, I think that it's going to largely mirror what happens in the, in the gubernatorial race, not so much because Gina Nelson has tied herself with Joy Hoffmeister, although I think that you know that's probably the case, but because you have this unique situation of Ryan Walters running his campaign almost you know parallel to the governor's from day one. Um, and you know what an interesting choice that is. I was out, you know, trick or treating on Monday, and, and one of my uh, with my kids, you know, not just me, but like, <laughs> uh, I'm glad you qualified. But, but you that. Know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, adults go trick or treat if you want to. Just don't take more candy than you should. Uh, but when uh, I'm out trick or treating, I'm talking to a neighbor, uh, and and he says, you know, here's here's an interesting thought. What if Ryan Walters uh, had just run as just a Republican who you know loved education, you know, former school teacher and he wanted to make education better in Oklahoma and he hadn't kind of gone down like this you know you know bizarro world TikTok you know um, deal where he's really made himself a pariah I mean people you know love or hate this guy I mean there's really no in between and um, you know like if he had done that you know what do you think would have happened I think I hadn't even thought about that you know that's you know so far off the radar from what kind of race he's been running um, but he'd probably be winning like 60, 65% right now just because of, you know, the Republican, uh, you know, bonus that he gets being a Republican on a statewide ballot, but he's really turned himself into a pariah. And I think Gina Nelson has you know really become the candidate of, of moderates and you have stability. And like, you know, this is, this isn't about a bunch of national hyperbole. This is about our classrooms right here in Oklahoma. And she's also along with Joy Hoffmeister really hammered home the the importance of protecting rural schools from voucher programs and schemes. Neva? Well, I think this is a case, a secondary race that normally would get very little attention has become a uh, kind of one of the showcase races to watch. And it is because of this alliance between the governor and their their, uh, respective uh, candidate nominee for the superintendent post. So I think when you look at it, the other the other thing to take into consideration in terms of how that vote, whether it really runs in tandem or whether there's a, a drop-off, is the fact that, you know, Walters and Nelson are both lesser-known candidates. I, you know, I saw some mm-hmm. favorable, unfavorable, and never heard of numbers uh, uh, last week, and it, it uh, basically confirmed that 
you, when you spend a lot of money, Stitt and Hofmeister basically uh, both are exceedingly well known now. I think mm-hmm. Stitt's uh, uh, only two percent had never heard of, and and Hofmeister surprisingly only six percent had never heard of. So, uh, but when you get to Walters and you get to Nelson, you're you're talking about a third or more of the electorate that still doesn't know anything about them. Probably. Uh, barely recognizes their name if you gave them a choice on a uh, ballot test. So I think these polls, as you say, I mean, we've seen them that are uh, up one for Walters or up five for Nelson this week, um, all within the margin of error. So it it is going to be what they do in their pockets to bring out some extra votes. And you talk about the kind of the piranha effect. It's really, you know, I think, Ryan, more the fact that both of these candidates what have solid bases in their own party, mm-hmm. um, solid yeah. core bases that are going to vote vote uh, for their candidate regardless. They don't hear it. They, they don't seem to be persuaded or needing more information. They've made mm-hmm. up their mind. So the independents and these folks that we don't predict always come out, if they come out and are in the mix on this, the question is, where do they trend in this race? And some, And I think this is really, uh, by all indications in all of the polls I've seen, the only race in secondary races that uh, has any possibility for Republicans not uh, not taking the seat. Right. So I think everyone else are in comfortable numbers. Certainly nothing's over till it's over. But I think this is the one that on the secondary scale <laughs> we'll have to really pay attention to. And as, as you know, as a guy who has his roots in rural Oklahoma, I'm I'm excited to see the Democratic Party uh, in these you know statewide offices, in particular the state superintendent race and the gubernatorial race, focusing on trying to win votes in rural Oklahoma. I think for you know a decade or better, uh, Democrats have kind of you know um, you know just given up in rural Oklahoma. I mean, there I don't think that there's really any. We'll talk in a moment about some of these state legislative races. There's mm-hmm. a, arguably a, a Democrat in the the state senate who represents maybe some rural areas, but there aren't rural Democratic legislators anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that it's been we're going to give up on that area, and it's just been kind of the urban and rural divide that we see around the nation. But I this is part of what happens whenever you've got Democrats that are out actually, you know. Uh, making a contest for those votes and then taking actual policies um, and saying, you know, let's talk about vouchers. Let's not talk about, you know, national party politics, but let's talk about vouchers and what it does to a rural community and rural schools there. And, you know, Democrats, they're not winning, you know, uh, they're not winning majorities there yet, but they're really cutting into that Republican base. And that's that's exciting to see like an actual conversation in rural Oklahoma. And it's not surprising that we see uh, Joe Biden front and center in the in much of the conversation trying to sway voters, because here's a guy in Oklahoma that's got a 61 percent unfavorable rating. I mean, he is toxic uh, to a large percentage of the uh, uh, the Oklahoma electorate. And so that is that is something that people just naturally respond, react, and gravitate to. But in a midterm, it's interesting that we have really seen the local issues, per, primarily the uh, uh, the education uh, issues, be front and center as opposed to inflation or some of the other things that are second and third and fourth on the uh, on the ticket. But they're not driving the conversation. It doesn't appear across the board. 
In a rare twist, all of Oklahoma's congressional seats are up for grabs after the resignation of Senator Jim Inhofe. In the U.S. Senate and House races in the general election, Neva, are there any you are watching closely? Not really. I think it's. Uh, I think what we see is that Republicans are going to have a great night. They're going to have two, uni- two United States senators. Uh, uh, they're going to have uh, the entire congressional delegation. So, um, th- frankly, it, with the backdrop of what's happening nationally, and we have the focus on will Republicans pick up the House and the Senate nationally. I think uh, it's interesting that we have uh, not had that uh, contest or conversation largely here in Oklahoma. And again, I think it's because Oklahomans know who their elected uh, leaders are in Washington. uh, And the only open, the open seat uh, that is being uh, contested uh, that was left open by the retirement of Jim Inhofe, that one has not proven to be a competitive race as well. I think Democrats would argue that uh, Kendra Horn is mounting a a strong effort, but the polls do not reflect the opportunity to really have a surprise upset. So I think um, I think these, by and large, are expected to be comfortable margins and maybe grow to wide margins uh, when we see the final results. Ryan, you know, for, former Congresswoman Horn in this uh, U.S. Senate race against Mark Wayne Mullen, you know, I think that uh, it is closer uh, than than um, most folks would have said that it was going to be. You know, the, the she's. You know, polling above 40, I, I think I saw some polls that showed her within, you know, five points or something like that, and that the gap was closing. Um, it would be uh, interesting to see what if, what would have happened if Kendra's race had been targeted the way that Joy Hoffmeister's race was for independent expenditures. If the DSCC, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, had come in and raised, you know, millions of dollars uh, behind this campaign. I think what you would have seen is that Mark Wayne Mullen would have, you know, turned on the afterburners at that point. But this is really a product, you know, you're not only of a, a relentless campaigner uh, and, a, and a very smart campaigner like Kendra Horn, you know, going out and talking to voters across the state of Oklahoma and building on her name recognition, but it's also a product of Mark Wayne Mullen not doing anything. Uh, you know, here's a guy with rare exception, hasn't even done interviews, he refused to do a debate, and, you know, we can argue about whether debates are relevant these days or not, but, you know, he really hasn't put himself out there to the people of Oklahoma and said, this is what I believe in, other than, you know, I got a, I got a big family, and, you know, I love my family, and I go to church, and, uh, you know, yay America. That's that's whole, his whole campaign, um, and I think the fact that Kendra has closed the gap, you know, shows that, you know, that may work this cycle, uh, but eventually... That's not going to work, uh, and the, the voters are going to demand more. Um, you know, if this race were, you know, four years from now, and there were, you know, more parity and and the ability to fund the campaign, I think that we see closer races. Uh, you know, even even on you know national campaigns like that. You know, on, on congressional races, the big congressional race story for me is that Stephanie Bice, Congresswoman Bice really hasn't done anything. Uh, and, and what a wasted opportunity for her to build name recognition with a new constituency, a newly redrawn district. Um, you know, we'll talk about the, the district attorney's race coming up, but you know, here's, you know, I know that everybody likes to make predictions and we're talking about November of 2022. Let me talk about November of 2024, June of 2024 for a second. Uh, Kevin Calvey, whether or not he's the incumbent district attorney of Oklahoma County or not at that point, challenging Stephanie Bice uh, in that open Republican primary, I think somebody like Kevin Calvey, because Congresswoman Bice hasn't really done a lot to shore herself up, she's going to be vulnerable in that 2024 primary in a way that you know, I think if she had a real uh, challenge from uh, from a Republican candidate, I don't think there's anything that really uh, validates that. I mean, I think Stephanie well, Bice is proven. Not. That's why it's a, <laughs> a so. wild prediction. And if I'm right, I'll be it super is, smart. It, it is wild, and you and uh, we'll I, go to the I, tape. But I think let's go back to this whole concept of you know where voters are in Oklahoma on the federal races. 
They know what they don't want in Washington, D.C., and they know who they want in Washington, D.C. And I think two years from now, when when we have a presidential election at the top of the ticket, we'll have this conversation on steroids in terms of where Oklahomans are. But that's why there's not contest, is because no one's interested in sending a Democrat from Oklahoma to Washington, D.C., based on what's not only what's going on up there, which is an utter disaster, but the fact that it is something that uh, needs to uh, needs to change. And I think, you know, if you want to make a wild prediction, I'll make one in that I believe, uh, based on where we are today, there's a outstanding opportunity for Republicans to pick up both the House and the Senate on Tuesday on Tuesday night. Several legislative seats will also be decided in Tuesday's election, though many were decided in the primary or incumbents went completely unchallenged. Ryan, are you keeping an eye on any of the races for state house or Senate? You know, there, there are a couple that I'm looking at. You know, one is kind of just an interesting case study, and that's uh, Tulsa's House District 70. Nondoc did a really good. Nondoc has done a lot of really great coverage of these state legislative races. I encourage folks that especially if you live in these districts, go check out Nondoc's website and, and look at their coverage of these campaigns because they really interview the candidates and give folks you know good perspective. But when you look at the the campaign there that's uh, shaping up between Suzanne Schreiber and Brad Banks, uh, Suzanne is the, the Democratic candidate, Brad is the Republican candidate. They're running to replace Republican Carol Bush. This is a uh, who's who's left and is you know looking now to run for mayor of Tulsa. Um, this is you know one of those you know kind of swing districts, even though it's been in Republican control for quite a while. It's one of those districts where it's pretty evenly split. And you know what we've seen as a result uh, when you have a competitive general election is uh, you know one it wasn't decided in the primary, and then two both of the candidates you know, really seem to be talking about local issues. You know you know nobody's really going off the rails here on on anything, and I you know I think that that really speaks to the importance of having uh, having drawn legislative districts that are ultimately competitive. You know, not to give Democrats a better shot or Republicans a better shot, but just to give voters a little bit more of a conversation rather than just, you know, people copying and pasting national scripts that we see in these, you know, or not even having general elections to begin with. Uh, you know, the other the other race that I'm looking at, and this is the one I mentioned earlier, is, you know, an arguable rural Democrat in the legislature, uh, and that's Senator J.J. Dossett. He's running for re-election uh, against Dana Prieto. Uh, I think that I'm saying his name correctly. Um, and, you know, that's largely seen as, I think, the, the most competitive uh, race in the, in the Senate. You know, it's, it would be a pickup for Republicans. Um, but, you know, J.J. Dossett is somebody who has uh, a long history in that district. His family is, you know, well-known in education in that district. He's been out knocking doors and working incredibly hard. And, I, you know, I, I think that he wins that uh, on Tuesday night. But, you know, it's probably going to be close. And, again, um, you know, it's it's the importance of having Democrats that can speak to rural Oklahomans. And I think Senator Dossett is exactly that kind of senator. Neva. I, I do agree with you that the Dossett uh, race is certainly one that both sides of the aisle are watching. Uh, it, it, it seems to be that it is a competitive race, uh, probably a dead heat uh, in many uh, many folks' estimation. And I think that uh, in tandem with that, in t- in Tulsa, um, I think Republicans could be poised to pick up the Provisano seat. I mean, that is one where uh, there seems to be real movement, a strong Republican uh, candidate uh, challenging the incumbent Democrats. So um, while you say that the pickup may be on the Carol Bush seat, uh, the, the, the seat that's open uh, that seems to be very competitive that you referenced, Ryan, and I think 
again, uh, to be uh, to be fair, I think it is a competitive seat looking at it from from all vantage points. So, and that's a seat that's really kind of showed the trend and changes that we see in some of these metropolitan seats. I mean, 10 years ago, uh, Ken Walker, when he was elected, very, very conservative uh, Republican, uh, won one election. And now we see the competitiveness in a, in a very different vein uh, in 2022, a decade later. So, I think there there are some other seats that are uh, ones that people kind of have on a watch list, but I think for the most part, they're most are uh, pretty clear and and largely decided. I think the takeaway bottom line is that regardless, the supermajority in both chambers will remain, uh, regardless of who the governor is, and that it, they will have in the House uh, uh, more, more than what they need to have a veto-proof uh, override. So the legislature comes back in February in a very strong position uh, to, uh, to do their work uh, in the legislative process and um, either and and build those relationships with these new folks uh, if there are new faces in the governor's office or if governor Stitt and his team is uh, back uh, you know ready for another session that will uh, i think speak to the fact that legislative candidates have have had kind of a large pass this election cycle we didn't have as many competitive races certainly in the in the general and i think that uh, uh it's a it gives pause to everyone to consider that we're going to have to be much more um forward thinking in terms of uh, candidate recruitment and 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 i think uh, both parties have talked about this through this entire election cycle that uh, that there there are things that have to change to make the process more competitive for republicans right. we just have to uh, make sure that uh, um, we take care of business uh, when these elections come come around, and I think we've seen adequate uh, resources. I think we've seen good campaigns run, and in the cases of the ones we've talked about, when they become competitive, it means that every single thing counts in terms of what you do to get your folks out to vote. Two people really watching these legislative races, the current president pro temp of the Senate, Greg Treat, and his challenger, Senator Rob Standridge, who's mounting a challenge to become the president pro temp, you know, you've got some new senators that are going to either be elected or, you know, in the Prieto case, you know, if J.J. Dawson wins, you know, Prieto's not there. If Prieto shows up, you know, who does he vote for? You know, he even mm-hmm. said in his non-doc article that he wasn't even aware that there was a pro-temp race going on. So yeah. uh, first things first. Yeah, first things first. Uh, but, I, you know, I think J.J. wins. But if, um, you know, I think that, you know, Greg Treat and uh, Rob Standridge are going to be watching this. I think most folks say that, you know, Rob's or that uh, uh, Senator Treat is going to be reelected as pro-temp. But you know, you get some new senators coming in and that can mix things up when they have their caucus retreat shortly after the election. Oklahoma County voters are deciding on their next top prosecutor. Republican Kevin Calvey is facing Democrat Vicki Behenna. Neva, how do you rate this race? You know, I think it's I think it's going to be competitive for all the reasons we've talked about. Oklahoma County uh, and the 800,000 <laughs> folks that live in the county have uh, have the opportunity to have a new DA for the first time in 16 years. And while this has not been a really a a, a real sensational uh, campaign, I think on both sides. I mean, there there's been the give and take, but it it's been somewhat muted, I think, mm-hmm. by what we've already talked about with the other two races that have kind of been high on the radar for everyone. But when you look at the uh, when you look at the spending disparity, I mean, uh, Calvi is a, a three to one uh, outspending uh, uh, his opponent, Vicky Bahanna. And I think um, uh, while the Democrats have done exceedingly well uh, in terms of numbers in Oklahoma County in the more local races, I think the question is, 
what happens here at the last minute when people finally start to pay a little attention. These are the type of races, down ballot, particularly county courthouse races, where unless, unless people have paid attention all through the primary season, they really start to focus here right at the end. And I think these messages that are being driven by both sides, it'll be interesting to see which one resonates the most. Right. You know, somebody who's spent, you know, nearly the past decade asking Oklahomans to pay attention to district attorney's races. Now we've got, you know, one of the most competitive district attorney's races in, you know, you know, pardon me, Tulsa County, but the most important district attorney's district in the state of Oklahoma comes out of Oklahoma County, you know, for a lot of reasons. One, you know, they, they represent a ton of people. Uh, they're going to have an outsized voice in the district attorney's council, which is kind of the, the, go- the governing body uh, of, of district attorneys. Um, you know, they'll have a lot of influence there. And they also prosecute folks at the Capitol. I mean, they have jurisdiction over, you know, ethics violations. And so that district attorney's spot is by, by far the most important in the state of Oklahoma, um, you know, my disappointment is that we've not really seen conversations about you know, what prosecutors do uh, in the day-to-day work that they do uh, and that their assistant district attorneys do and the bureaucratic operation of the district attorney's office and decisions about bail and decisions about charging. Um, you know, the prosecutor in any county enjoys an enormous amount of political power, maybe the most political power of any elected official uh, in the state of Oklahoma. But most Oklahomans, unless you're caught in their crosshairs, don't fully realize you know, the awesomeness of that power uh, and how it can be wielded for good or bad. Um, and you know, I think that you know that's kind of been lost. I mean, we we've seen some some ads here at the last minute, you know, going after Kevin Calvey for you know his uh, very fiery and uh, you know uh, rhetoric on the House floor about abortion and setting himself on fire. Um, and you know that's you know. You know, maybe people want to look at that as like disposition stuff. You know, how, how is his demeanor? How is he going to manage the office? But, you know, really when it comes down to it, I think that this whole campaign um, has been a missed opportunity to really, you know, raise and elevate questions about how DA should act in the state of Oklahoma. Well, and I think Kevin Calvey has really um, kind of pushed the conversation more to the administrative side, more to the to, to that side in terms of conversations of the style of DA he would be. And, and there's different styles, as we know, looking back over the past half dozen DAs uh, over the past several decades. So, but in the ca- in the case of what they are shifting from, I mean, you have a DA in David Prater, who is someone who has done at least a dozen jury trials, someone who has been involved in in uh, uh, several hundred cases during his tenure as DA directly. So he has been much more the prosecutor, and that does fit the profile, clearly, of, uh, of Vicki Bahanna, a career yeah. mm-hmm. federal prosecutor. So uh, whether the voters, as you say, whether they start to make their uh, decisions based on who they, what they're looking for in their next DA, and there, and there's some significant things regardless of the who, who the DA is that every DA is involved in, and that includes uh, every shooting involved involving a police officer mm-hmm. it, uh, in order to clear them or or determine whether or not they uh, charges must be filed. Those are significant things that I think uh, the general public, because of uh, just the the climate and the interest in public safety and and the whole uh, element of rising crime in the minds of some people, uh, the DA is is that person who they really focus on as the one that can make some significant changes. So this will be a very interesting race. It was it's not been as high spending. It's not been as uh, uh, really engaging um, as I think uh, I would have expected six months ago mm-hmm. as we uh, saw this race develop. 
Well, you know, all the oxygen was taken out of the air. I don't think it's necessarily either of these candidates' fault that that conversation didn't happen. I think that, you know, oxygen was out of the room with a uh, you know, very competitive gubernatorial race, a state super. Mm-hmm. How do you compete with that? And, you know, really, especially compete with that and go have very nuanced policy conversations with voters uh, about, you know, issues that, again, most people, unless you're a criminal defense lawyer, unless you're a prosecutor, unless you're in law enforcement, unless you're a judge, unless you've been on a jury, uh, unless you've been prosecuted yourself, you don't really see these things um, and in play and, and how it actually operates in the courtroom. And those it's difficult to explain to folks in a, in a 30 second ad. And it's even difficult to explain when you're out knocking doors. And this will be where partisan politics does kick in. Uh, when people uh, don't have a lot of information or haven't made a real firm decision just on that person, that particular individual, they will revert to party. Uh, they will revert to party voting oftentimes. So again, turnout is the key to this. If more Democrats turn out than than Republicans, that's a factor. If Republicans can uh, uh, do very well in, in, in harnessing and getting their folks out uh, on Tuesday, that'll make a difference. And, you know, when you think about a DA's race, I mean, I'm always struck by the fact that they have to communicate to as many voters as a congressional candidate does. Yeah. I mean, 800,000 mm-hmm. folks in Oklahoma County uh, and being the largest county in the state of Oklahoma, it is such a significant uh, position, but it's also one that is so difficult to be able to get your message out to the majority of voters in the county. And next week, we will be talking about the results from the election. Meanwhile, everybody, make sure you do go out and vote on Tuesday. Polls will be open from 7 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock in the evening. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org.